We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Michael K. Powell, the former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, FCC. He was appointed by President Bill Clinton in 1997 and appointed chairman by President George W. Bush in 2001, serving until 2005. During his time as FCC chair, Chairman Powell oversaw the rapid transformation of the communications markets into the digital age. During his tenure, the internet became this widespread commercial use, as did smartphones, Wi-Fi, and satellite radio. In his current role as the president and CEO of NCTA, the Internet and Television Association, he leads one of the largest trades associations in Washington, D.C., representing the communications and content industries. Chairman Powell has had many public service positions, including Chief of Staff of the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice, Policy Advisor to the Secretary of Defense, and service as an armored cavalry officer in the U.S. Army. Volunteerism is something we will speak about today, a topic near and dear to his heart. What I appreciate most about you, Michael, is your courage and kindness. You are both strong and virtuous, Welcome to ROG. Thank you, Shannon, for that wonderful introduction. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you, too. And I would love to start with a little bit of your background. Well, I think the most notable thing is I'm a proud Army brat. I grew up uh, in a military household, which uh, included uh, many, many moves, uh, many, many changes of schools, uh, many, many hours in the backseat of a station wagon with my two spectacular sisters uh, on the way from point A to point B, you know, where we had to learn to start over a lot, uh, learn how to rely on the family unit for a lot of nourishment and how to adapt, to adapt to a lot of changing circumstances. Uh, Contrary to what some military brats would say, I think we found it uh, an idyllic existence. We enjoyed it very much. The Army was our family Military post really felt like home, and we grew up in that lifestyle. So I grew up that way um, all over the country, which I also enjoyed seeing so much of America um, in communities I would have never stepped foot in, but for military service, everything from Washington, D.C. to Georgia to Kentucky to Colorado, which gave me a great perspective on on my nation. Um, You know, when I uh, came up through childhood... Mm -hmm. Um, I went to high school and uh, began to form, I suppose. Uh, I was a a high school gymnast. Um, At the same time, I was a big uh, theater person, believe it or not. I was a serious theater geek. Um, Along with my sisters, we were just our own traveling von traps. And uh, (laughs) went off to college at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. I had a spectacular experience. Um, and went there on an art military ROTC scholarship, Um, ended up commanding the Corps of Cadets, became 
um, you know, the top military student there, which was exciting. And the beginning of what I thought was going to be the career for the rest of my life. I got out of college and then um, uh, went into the military. I was a combat arms armored cavalry officer and was stationed in Amberg, Germany at a time where 1985, when the Cold War was still a real thing. And the fear of the Soviet army that lived just over the border from where I was stationed was a very real and present danger, a life that I quite loved and enjoyed for reasons most people don't appreciate. I loved the, the work of caring for soldiers. Um, it's a special bond. It's a special responsibility that, that, that really formed me in meaningful ways. I thought that'd be my life, similar to my father's career, just plug along in the army. And um, the fates had a different uh, idea of the direction of my life. I was in a horrible uh, army training accident. I broke my spine, pelvic cradle, very, very seriously injured. Um, that led to being in the hospital for literally a year as an inpatient. And the saddest day of my life is when some uh, colonel doctor walked into my bedroom and said, Lieutenant, with all due respect, I'm sorry to tell you, we're processing you out of the army. You're no longer able to meet physical fitness requirements. Uh, absolutely catastrophic news to me. Um, not only was it what I wanted to be and the way that I wanted to be it, you know, I had deep family history. This was what I was supposed to do. And suddenly you found yourself back to square one, wondering what comes next. But, you know, we get up off the floor and what came next was I left the army and a year later got out of the hospital. It's a whole nother great story. But four months later, married my college best friend, uh, who has been my wife now for 35, almost 36 years. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Went to work at the Defense Department for a little while as a civilian in the policy shop doing U.S.-Japan relationships for the Secretary of Defense, at that time Dick Cheney. Decided to go to law school, went to Georgetown, had a wonderful experience, graduated, went to clerk on the United States Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit for a phenomenal mentor who to this day is one of my dearest friends, and uh, had a good career in a law firm on the way to the Justice Department where somehow, some way, somebody found me and said, hey, why don't you let us appoint you to the Federal Communication Commission? Oh, why not? Off I went, to my great surprise, as a young 34-year-old. Three years later, a different president of a different party said, hey, why don't you now be the chairman and lead this agency, which is one of the greatest honors of my life uh, for the men and women, 2,000 men and women of the Federal Communication Commission who work hard on behalf of the American public every day. It was really the best job I've ever held. Did that, left in 2005, bummed around doing interesting things, private equity, a bunch of stuff. But ultimately, my phone rang, another one of those unexpected, hey, why don't you come run NCTA? Uh, well, sure, let's go do that. So here I am. I've been here as the presidency of NCTA for 12, going on 13 years, longest job I've ever held exciting at the intersection of technology, media, and society, and trying to figure out how does public policy respond to those things, not only technologically and legally, but morally and ethically, is an amazingly privileged thing to work on um, in a world of the internet and AI and 5G and 10G cable networks. Um, so I find it very rewarding. So I hope that wasn't too long-winded. Not even, not even close. And 
Listeners, I will put links to several of these things in the show notes because it's just too much for us to dig into right now. But just on that point of the privilege, which is also a heavy, I don't want to say burden, but it's its a big responsibility that you have both at the FCC and the NCTA. You know, what can you share with us about what that feels like to be in a position of influence over something that really affects all of humanity? Yeah, you know, I would, I would key off the first thing you said about privilege first. You know, I was raised in a family that venerated public service. And service in the strictest sense meant, even to the point of self-sacrifice, to give of oneself to something that you believed was meaningful and purposeful. And I've always thought of every job I has held as a steward. I, I am a temporary passing thing. Um, I am here for a while. I will have whatever impact I have. And, you know, as my mother taught me to say on the last day of every job, I hope I left this place better than I found it. And that's my guiding lodestar as I lead anything to try to leave it a little better than I found it. And what I've learned that means is your policies won't have that much half-life. You know, a lot of the things you thought were important will fade pretty quickly with time. What doesn't fade is the impact and investments you've made on people you leave behind. And, you know, who will then take on the next decade of leadership? And if you made an impact on the way they see the world and lead and care for people, that's where you will find the difference. So the way I think to get to the latter part of your question a position of such important impact. Um, I am a very human-centered leader. I think the impact comes in the, the hearts and minds and skills of people. And so for me, high levels of leadership are truly joyful because it just means someone has invested with you the responsibility for a larger number of people, even some abstract and amorphous you will never meet, consumers out in the country who will pick up our product or run into a problem on the internet, that you had some influence on directing is the way I like to think about my work. You know, you could take something as arcane as, well, what is Wi-Fi technology? But I think about it every day on during COVID when kids couldn't go to school, people couldn't go to work, to know that something I worked on made it possible for seven computers in a home to survive a pretty tectonic shock because we had the foresight to bring Wi-Fi into the market 20 years ago it is where you get your soul satisfaction. And so I think it's a very, I like to use words like it's a sacred responsibility to have great responsibility um, and to understand that means responsibility. You know, I'll tell you a quick story in the first day, the day I was moving to Germany to take on my first real professional army assignment, um, a platoon leader in Germany, I was flying out that night. My father came into my bedroom in the morning, uh, woke me up because he was going to work and I wasn't going to see him before my flight. And he kissed me on the cheek and he only said one thing. And the thing was, uh, take care of our soldiers. At the end of the day, you know, if there was one message he was going to leave me with, it's you will have the responsibility 
not only for the performance, but the life. And in the army, that means life, right? My mistakes could kill somebody. So we, we took very seriously caring for those we lead. Um, so it kind of feels like that to me. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And then this is, everything I'm hearing you say is resonant of generous leadership. And, and I want to dig into that a little more. But before we do, just want to talk to you about the, or hear you share more about the take care of our soldiers. You know, when your father said that to you, and I would also love to talk more about him. What did that mean to you? How did you think about that from that day forward? And I can imagine even now looking at your staff and your, you know, all of the people that you associate with on your boards, like that you're taking care of them. You're viewing this as a, a position of stewardship. Love to hear more about that. Yeah, you know, it's all that that you described, but I'm trying to think of a good way that I would add a layer. I add a layer of intimacy. You know, I can come to work or I could mm. go to my unit and take care of the basics of people. Most leaders do. Did they get paid? You know, do they have the equipment they're supposed to have? Are you training them in their mission? Yes. You can check a lot of boxes and say, you know, in the army, in the field, are they well fed? You know, do they have the ammunition they need, etc. cetera. Um, and many, many leaders do that stuff and do that stuff pretty well. And that's the full extent of what they think that means. Um, to me, that is only the upper layers of the onion. You know, I, I need to know um, your family life. I want to know your greatest fears. I need to know your insecurities. I need to know your ambitions. I need to know, and not in a data collecting way, I need to steward to those human things that get the best out of you or will result in the worst of you. I really do believe the things that cause people to perform brilliantly or really poorly, this, there's a huge middle layer, which I'm ignoring for the moment, has nothing to do with the blocking and tackling of work life. It has to do with where you are in your own heart and soul at a given moment in time. And, you know, when I was a young lieutenant, there were many nights, you know, I would realize a soldier was financially struggling. What he was hiding is he didn't know how to balance a checkbook. Why would he? He's 17 years old. He came from Harlem. He's never had a checkbook. He's never had money. He wasn't raised in a family that taught financial responsibility. He doesn't know what debt is. He thinks if he has checks, he has money, but he doesn't. Is it my job to teach him financial? Well, in my opinion, yes, it is. Because he's worrying about it, he's scared about it, and he's coming to work, and this is what's on his mind while you're asking him to carry a gun. And he doesn't understand why he's in debt. I would have to get behind that curtain and say, with a, with, a, with a moment of vulnerability, do you not understand how this works? And get them to say, sir, I'm really sorry. I, I don't. I said, okay, you know, meet me in my office after work and let's start working on it. And I don't care what time it is. Maybe at 10 o'clock tonight, we're going to do that. Or an hour before we meet in the morning. Um, I spend many a night, you know, soldiers are young and they're often from environments. This is the first responsibility they've ever had. You know, 
in the army, you'd get called at midnight, your soldier's drunk downtown, causing trouble. They've arrested him. You got dressed and went and get and went to get them and tried to understand what happened. Before you punished them, you tried to understand what was going on with them. So I, I think, I guess I would call it this intimacy layer without being intrusive to somebody, but being open to, I'm here to, to sit with you, walk with you, not just talk at you. And to take, and it sounds like you're taking personal responsibility for helping that individual grow as a human, as a person, in whatever way. And in some ways, it's you know just their awareness of how life operates, or it might be an interpersonal issue, or you know, and maybe it's a mental health challenge that they're experiencing. Whatever it is, but you're noticing there's something, and then you're caring to ask that next question and to to spend spend that extra time. And I like the word intimacy. I also heard you say vulnerability of just, you know, being willing to have those conversations that are uncomfortable, right? We don't want to be wrong and we don't want to not know how to do something. But if you're recognizing that there is a gap there, you're willing to get in there with them. And there's some other dimensions to it. It's sort of like, I start from this viewpoint, every life has worth Every employee, every soldier, every colleague has worth. Every soldier colleague has a desire to grow. And there are various versions of growth. Some are very ambitious. Some are relatively stable. But no one wants to sit still. Everybody wants to evolve. So what's your role in helping them grow and evolve? Um, You know, everybody has basic needs, you know, how's my health? One of the things I discover, I discovered in COVID as a leader who had to lead remotely and worry about a disease. And I also am in the board of a hospital. So I, I took a keen interest. I realized that the degree of health-related suffering that complicates employees' daily lives is way higher than we think. There's never a moment in my office where someone doesn't have a cancer diagnosis. Never. If you don't know that, it's because you're not paying attention. Somebody does. Somebody's dealing with a condition, a disease. Someone's dealing with mental suffering, which is really endemic in this country. And you have to be willing to look out for those things and understand, oh, You can't pay attention because you're scared to death right now about actually dying. (laughs) It's hard to really motivate yourself to write that memo. And not be distracted by, right, this this real threat you are experiencing. So I've gotten a little bolder in ministering to people's health and wellness needs. You know, I... Mm. What are you doing? How do you do it? um, I make sure that I am aware of almost any employee at any level is out sick. Any employee has COVID, any employee is in the hospital, any employee, if I can, got a diagnosis. We immediately embrace them with the organization. What do you need? Do you need time off? How do we adjust your workload? I tend to reach out to them personally you know, if they're far away, I will make sure, no matter how how junior, I will email them. I, I heard what you're dealing with. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. We're rooting for what you're going through. You'll be welcomed back here when the time comes. 
Or if it's a parent, there's a lot of that. Uh, or a child. Um, so number one, we engage. We do not, you know, oh, so-and-so's out. They took leave. Who knows what's going on? I'm very active in wanting to understand and trying to see what we can do. We send gifts. We, we try to solve barriers and problems and hassles that they're having so that they can put their full attention on their diagnosis. Um, things like that are pretty commonplace here. Thank you. That, that's helpful. And for those who are thinking about how could I be more bold or more attentive or more intimate in, in the lives of the people that I serve, you know, those are some really practical, meaningful ways to do it. And to do it your way, you know, whatever way that is for you as a leader. But the point is, I think, to notice and to to get involved, you know, take take action and know that you're re- reaching out, your text, your notes, your caring and your flexibility and seeing them for whatever they're going through. I mean, that just means so much to people to be seen and cared for. You know, and two other things, if you don't mind me adding. One is I really believe the methods of demonstration of care matter. So I, I think the power of a note that's written by your own hand is radically different than, than an email. You know, even during COVID, I, developed, I started a practice of, I would write a note to anyone on their birthday. But because we weren't together, you know, I couldn't walk down and hand them a note. So instead of email, just emailing them, I hand wrote the note, scanned it, and put it in the email. They would know that I sat down and picked up my pen and wrote about them. And the power of that is way stronger than you emailed them or you texted them. Um, so it's really important to be intentional about the, the way you create moments for people. The one caveat that I've tried to throw in is you have to be very careful. You can be intrusive. Some of this stuff is none of your business. Some people are open to it. Some people are not. And so I don't want to say, hey, you just go barging in people's office, say, hey, I heard you have cancer. Let's talk about it. That would be a mistake. But I've learned and practiced very carefully over my career how to do that in a thoughtful, soft, accessible way that I find people respond to um, and feel that they can be open with me Thank about. Thank you. That, that's really helpful guidance the, in the ways that the methods and the, and the thoughtfulness and reading the the responses that you're getting and being open to feedback. It sounds like you're really open to whatever kind of uh, response you're getting as a way to, to modify your approach. So what this is all boiling up to, and maybe that's just because the lens I look at everything through is generosity, is generosity. So I'd love to hear your thought leadership on just what is this and why does it matter in, in leadership? Yeah, you know, when you first approached me, I thought, oh, generosity, it's uh, not a word you hear all the time. But in some ways, it's just another beautiful statement of the way I would have addressed it, which is other-centeredness and selflessness. I mean, I I think the very definition of a true leader, if you said pick one value out of all the values, you could write down on a piece of paper, what do you think is the indispensable value of leadership? I would say it is to be selfless, to be willing to sacrifice for the good of others, to be willing to give without expecting something in return because the, the, the beauty is in the giving, uh, in the caring, um, in the no strings attached, you know, style of offering. Um, and then from there, I think if you, 
I'm a big believer in frames. If you if you look at your world through that kind of frame, all kinds of things start flowering for you in your visual field as to the way you should be today, the way you should do this project, the way you should do the new strategic plan, the way almost everything you do, you can reflect on what would be the generous way to do this, the selfless way to do this. Do I need to write that section or does somebody need a stretch opportunity and they would be thrilled if I would walk down and say, hey, I'm going to give you a chance to write it instead of me. You know, even though normally I would write it, I would say, you know what, I'm going to just, there's this young woman in my office, I think has a lot of potential. She's eager. I've had my eye on her. I'm going to surprise her and I'm going to walk down and say, I'm going to give you something to do. You won't be the final voice on it, but I know you're anxious to grow. Write this for me. Let's see what you come up with. You're being generous. You know, I think one thing that's underutilized, and I think it's really important as a leader, particularly as you you get you age and gray. Generosity is the sharing of your knowledge and experience um, in a selfless way. And what I mean by that is what I find people do generally as they develop knowledge and expertise is they hoard it in order to advance their own value. So, you know, most leaders, I don't know if it's most, but a lot of leaders I know, they lead in a way that makes them indispensable, right? Because they're the only ones who really know how to do this, really the only ones who've had this experience, really the only ones. And, you know, we used to say in the army, the, you know, the cemeteries are filled with indispensable men. I, I, I have the theory that my, my goal as a leader is to actually steadily make myself dispensable. I will know it's time to leave when I think, my work here is to, I have nothing more to offer. They could do this in their sleep because I've given them in the most generous way I can everything I ever learned. I try to be really generous with my experience and my knowledge. So we have a couple rules. You know, my assistant who's been with me for 25 years knows the young person, 25 calls and says, has the courage to say, is there any chance I could, I could get 15 minutes with Michael to talk about my career choices, the answer is always yes. We, we are very, very generous with coaching. Like anybody wants to call, come in my office to talk about something they are struggling with, the answer is always yes. I told Judy this isn't something we think about. The answer is yes, it's just when. It's not if, it's just when, we'll do it. And I have a huge stream of people that come through here regularly for no other purpose that they just want to talk something out with me. And as I turn, as I'm, because, you know, I'm a 60 year old now moving forward, I gain no greater pleasure, joy, and satisfaction than someone whose brighter days are ahead of them want to come seek my experience on what to watch out for. And they don't want anything but that. And I don't want anything from them in return. It's an amazingly joyful practice. Um, I do that with my own employees, which they're all, they all know the most. Today, I had a long session with the woman who cleans our office about her life and what she was doing. Um, I think they all know anyone can come in here any day of the week and have that conversation if they want to. And I do it with young people. I do it with midlife career people. Uh, Oh, I just need some advice. Doors open. Um, Anything I learned, I'm willing to give to you. Mm, that's incredible. Something I'm hearing in a lot of what you're saying, Michael, is around identity. Like 
early on when you were talking about the disappointment and the, the tragedy that happened to you in the training where you were no longer in the army. You were a lieutenant in the army and you had that identity that had to shift, right? And then you were just talking about being of service and you it sounds like you have this identity of being selfless and a steward. You know, I, I want to be a steward. And when you really think about that, you look, you find opportunities to be a steward. It's kind of like any other identity that we have. So I'm just hearing you like kind of coach us on that because even just what you just shared about being available to people who want to talk with you, learn from you, grow with you, that you're, you know, for many people, their challenge is time. I don't have time. Nobody really has time, but you make time because this is important to you because you see yourself as a steward, right? This is my job. My job is to pour all the value that I've got out into this place and then, you know, find another place to be a steward. So uh, talk to me just about identity. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, 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 th- I think somewhat regrettably, I think particularly in American culture, we have a strong sense of identity as being um, derived almost exclusively from your work. Your work, your title, your income in kind of the pretense of a meritocracy that truly, Mm -hmm. really probably isn't one in any true sense of the word, but we convince ourselves that it is. The world is driven much more by randomness and luck than meritocracy. You know, I wouldn't be where I was, but for a whole bunch of very fortunate coincidences, in addition to having some talent, a lot of talented talent never comes to fruition because the luck turned a different way for them. So I live with that belief. One of the things I started learning after my tragic experience when my identity, you've said it well, was literally ripped from me. And, you know, suddenly without warning in an unexpected violent way, like, you know, I, I was cruising in the army. I had finished first in my class in college. And then when I went to my first officer basic course, I graduated first in the class. I got the most plum assignment. Um, I was leading a big unit. I had glowing reviews. This was my life, everything. And worse, I this was my personal, I've grown up in this army web of culture. Like it wasn't just I had this job for a couple of years. I had had this my whole life. And, you know, in one nanosecond on a German Autobahn, Mm -hmm. with one moment of bad coincidences, you're laying in a street fighting for your life. Mm -hmm. And everything you put your heart and soul into, suddenly somebody tells you, we regret to inform you, is gone. That was a pretty brutal experience that identities that are rooted in things like your job and your title and your positioning are very fleeting and fragile. And my dad used to have one of his 13 rules, which said, you know, don't ever hang your ego on your job because if your job goes, then your ego goes with it. You know, I'm a, I happen to be a geeky lover of philosophy, particularly Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always been sort of fascinated by like, who is this, who is this crazy Aristotle character who just sat around thinking big thoughts and wondering what happiness meant and meaning meant? But what struck me about it was the idea that perfecting yourself as a human is a job. And to do it well is to create identity that is 
very distinct and separated from anything you're applying that identity to at any given moment. So I just start with the who is Michael, right? And who does Michael want to be known as? Um, When I die, what do I want them to say about Michael is the way I order my identity. Do I want them to think I'm kind? Well, if I do, then am I behaving kindly? Am I leading with kindness? If I, you know, no one's going to say that about me if I'm not really that person. If I want them to say he was open and compassionate to people, well, am I open and compassionate to people? Um, if I wanted them to say I was a good family man, well, was I? Did my sons get the best? Of, you know, you you start measuring yourself horizontally instead of vertically. Like vertically is, I got this job, I got this title, I got this. Um, and I've been fortunate that I got that stuff too. But I have to say, as I get older, I almost giggle how irrelevant I think most of that stuff is. I mean, I'm really grateful I got to be chairman of the FCC and I lead this place. And don't get me wrong, lots, lots of psychic so, uh, satisfaction comes from those things. But I almost giggle about how unimportant they are now to what I think I've become. The, the pride I have in what I've become is quite unrelated to any job or any amount of money. And I like that. And I try to teach young people to chase that. It's it's found in your character development. It's found in your moral compass. It's found in how you walk through the world and interact with other human beings in a way that changes, affects lives, theirs and yours in a productive, healthy way. And divorcing your identity from work also lets you deal with your inevitable decline. You know, I'm on the phone a lot with 60-year-old friends who are dealing with the harsh reality that they're on the downs, no matter how hungry they are still, they are not the hot rockets anymore. We we are on the, (laughs) I've learned to be okay with this. There comes a moment where you're not the first call people are making anymore. There's a generation of people coming behind. It's a merry-go-round. You get one ride um, and you have to make the most of that ride. But when you divorce your identity from your work, then you can you can take that ride more, more holistically and more emotionally effectively because the decline of work isn't, isn't the decline of you. In fact, I think the older you are, the more you're a sage, the more you're wise, the more you have experience. The, the good part of you actually gets better while this work part is declining. And then it's sort of, what do you do with that good stuff? Um, I have to say one last thing. I think I am busy and I don't have any time is the biggest BS excuse on planet Earth. It's a lie. People are not as busy as they pretend to be. They, 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 we have invented a culture. If I meet a friend in Washington and say, how's it going? The answer is always, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, so busy. And you're like, really? What's it busy with? You know, Einstein at 27 wrote three laws of physics in an afternoon. And we act like we're busy because we did three things today. I, I really reject the culture of false busyness and productivity. And you have enough time for anything that matters. The issue is what you've decided matters. Exactly. Preach. Yes. Absolutely. Well, in your father's eulogy, which will be in the show notes as well, because it's so magnificent, you shared so many valuable and meaningful sentiments. 
you spoke about this difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And I'm hearing you reference that right now, where you were talking about how we can emulate character and be good and really be like exactly what you're saying. Identify with the role that you're playing, not with the job that you have. And I do hear people say, you know, if I say, oh, tell me about yourself, we immediately talk about what we do for as an occupation. So you reference that, the these resume virtues versus eulogy virtues and living for the, you know, what will be said for me when I'm gone. And I think that's that's a really important thing for us to think about. Yeah, it's um I sh- I should be clear, this these these were not original terms to me. I read about them in the most phenomenal book called The Road to Character by David Brooks. These are David Brooks's constructs and they, you know, sometimes you stumble on something that changes you in an instant and this book and this this framing changed everything for me. What 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 David is saying is, you know, we we teach you about the treadmill and you're running this race and we, we, we're, we're very aggressively taught to strive kind of in an economic utilitarian way, you know, collecting jelly beans and how many, you know, jobs and titles and uh, accolades, you know, when you're striving and you're, you're networking and connecting and the society tells you this is the path to, to fame and fortune and health and well-being. And what we find out is um, the best way to test this is is that what people are going to want to talk about you when you've breathed your last day on earth? And when you go to a funeral, and I think funerals are an amazing preserve of human activity that's still quite moving and communal, this is not what we talk about. We do not quote somebody's GPA. We do not quote what their salary was. This guy was amazing. He made a billion dollars. That's not what they talk about. Those last moments on your bed, what you're craving for and remembering, I guarantee you will not be that stock trade you didn't make. You know, your thoughts will be turning to your mother, to your family, to your friends, to the meaningful relationships in your life. And so David said, you know, look, there are these virtues that are these meritocratic virtues that you're loading up your resume with and you've been aggressively trained to pursue. But in a way, they're a false siren call. They will never fulfill you. They will never bring you that that soul-nourishing peacefulness you're craving. That will only be found in the eulogy virtues. And most human beings don't come to them till very late. In their 70s and 80s, it suddenly dawns on them kindness, compassion, humility, caring, love, um, are the secrets to life. And if this is true, which it seems to be, why aren't we teaching people to develop these values and virtues the same way we're teaching kids to build their resumes? Why aren't we teaching them ways to build their characters? And why aren't we willing to say these things and be this person in the world now? Age 21, let's start now. You know, I'll tell you a funny way it started. I started to experiment with this was particularly for men, I have to tell you, right? You know, we're friends, boyfriends are like, we talk this, we talk this, but boyfriends have, boys have, boys as friends of each other have a very hard time being emotional. And, you know, a friend said this to me once about like, oh, you know, boys never say anything to each other that's 
I said, you know, this is tricky. I'm going to start saying, I love you to my best friend. See what happens. I had one friend who did this and I felt it was always at first odd, but then amazingly wonderful. So from that moment on, I started for my dearest friends. If we hung up on the phone, I said, hey, great talking to you. I'll talk to you next week. I love you. And it would be like, oh. And then it didn't take long before, hey, man, it's great to talk to you. I love you too. It is the simplest joy of my life that I have friends that say, I love you to me. And I say to them, just like I say to my wife or sister or mother. And that creates an intimacy and a love and a caring that's really special. Like why start doing that when you're an old grandpa? Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. And talking about Say It Now, there's a movement called Say It Now, which is the like, why wait till the eulogy to tell the people that you love how much you love them and why you love them. And I really want to perpetuate that more. So it's something else we can hold each other accountable for. Uh, So I want to just do uh, my attempt at recapping some of the things I heard you say so that our listeners can think about how to apply some of this to their own lives. So similarly, they won't have your resume to echo, but they, some of the sentiments and the virtues that you've shared. So you talked about being a steward and that the recognition that we're temporarily passing through and do the best we can while we're here. You talked about leaving everything better than you found it. And that's everything from a hotel room to a conference room. Uh, Be human-centered, you know, put humans at the center of it all, that, that being attentive, taking care of the soldiers, how are we doing that in our own work and lives? How are we taking care of the individuals who are taking care of the mission and the work? And that adding that layer of intimacy, how, how, what does that look like in our own style and our own lives? And then you talked about the methods of caring, how we can consider, you know, is it a handwritten note? Is it stopping by? Is it dropping off a gift? Is it sending them a text? You know, what is it that we could do that would be thoughtful and connecting and generous to others? And then you said, give without strings attached. And I mean, that is the ROG philosophy of, you know, we're not giving so that we can get, but as you described, there's so much value that the giver receives from from making that contribution. And then you talked about sharing knowledge and experience willingly and generously. And then the leaving us with the who am I and who do I want to be and deciding to make choices that model that way of being now and not waiting. Anything you would add to that, Michael? One, you're a great summarizer. That was excellent. Um, Look, I would say we're all in pursuit in our limited time on earth. What's a good life? Aristotle described it well. What is a good life? And are you on a path to have one um, is important. And, you know, two other quick things. You know, in Buddhist philosophy, everyone you see is suffering. There's no human person you know isn't struggling with something. And you can you can go to them and help. Um, And I love this great quote from a uh, Buddhist who was asked, why are you happy all the time? And he said, because I don't care what happens. Meaning I have a degree of just equanimity about the world. What happens, happens, and I can cope with any of it. Um, If you summed it all up, I think that's Ah, what love is. So beautiful. And it's the the 13th rule. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Perpetual optimism, force multiplier. <laughs> As the general would say. Oh my gosh. Michael, thank you for who you are and for sharing that with us today. Shannon, thank you. It's been a joy. Good to be with you. 
Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.